have a Bible with you, open it up to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. So Princeton University is the fourth oldest institution of higher education in our country, Princeton. And can you imagine the archives of dissertations that have been submitted at Princeton University? Could you just imagine, like, so when you're going to get a PhD, you have to submit a dissertation, and they have to go through the archives and kind of try to find a subject that hadn't been covered yet. Well, one grad student was lamenting the project of selecting a dissertation. And so a grad student at Princeton said this to Albert Einstein in the 1950s. says, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research? And here's what Einstein said. Find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. Church, Jesus expected his people to be that somebody. And he's stirring something in this body around this theme of prayer. We had 75 people gather this morning at 9.15. 75. And whether it was 7 or 75, but the spirit and the thrust of it was, hey, we're just learning how to press in. We're going to be that somebody. Amen, church? We're going to be that somebody. Who's got to find out about prayer? Jesus' people are to be that somebody. He said his house was to be a house of prayer for the nations. And You might be paying attention to this sign up here, so many of you know Bob Everett. This is a cherry tree from his plot of land. He said it's been there for, what, 30-plus years? I don't know. What would you say, Bob? How long has it been there? Huh? 130 years or so? 30 years. years. There you go. Bob said he got this piece of cherry, did some work on it, put some artwork together, and created a sign for the church, Travailing Prayer. Because that's what it means to be a people who are going to press in together. This is where we left Nehemiah off last week. Do you remember, you know, Nehemiah? He was raised to travail in prayer. Did you know that? Do you remember that? Nehemiah didn't grow up in his homeland of Israel. He grew up 700 miles east in Babylon. He grew up in a Babylonian environment, breathing Babylonian air, and he had an amazing set of parents and a a circle of people around him that helped him become grounded to the point that in Nehemiah chapter 1, As a young man, when he is thrust into a reality, he gets gripped by current reality. Remember, one of his brothers comes and delivers the news about what the homeland's looking like. And the summary was, broken walls, burn gates, discouraged people. It's Nehemiah 1. And Nehemiah's knee-jerk reaction was recorded in verse 4. Here's what it says. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We called that phrase right there, mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And later on in the text, we see he did it day and night. We said in the words of Asbury Professor David Thomas, we called that travailing prayer. This focused, burdened, pressing in, a calling out that comes from a space of crying out to God. That's travailing prayer. This idea that you are gripped by current reality to the point where you kind of fall on your knees, fall on your face in a sense of desperation and dependence that, God, you must come. You must part the heavens and come. Without you, we've got nothing, and with you, we've got everything. We're joining Jesus in his prayer Right, The Lord's Prayer when he said, wake up there, come down here. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That space, right? That's travailing prayer. 
It's travailing prayer that has this vocabulary of a hunger for God. It's travailing prayer that we call integrity prayer. That's what Professor Thomas said. It's like this, this idea that travailing prayer just aligns and it's in step with the current realities you're in. It's integrity prayer. Travailing prayer is calling upon God to kind of bend a nation away from the pull of secularism and bring a spiritual awakening to this land. That's what travailing prayer does. We're going to pray our nation and bend it away from the pull of secularism, and we're going to give a window into another world, another kingdom with another king. That's our role. We're not mirroring back the cultural moment. We're going to demonstrate to the culture. We're going to pray in the face of the cultural moment and bend it towards the kingdom of God. That's travailing prayer. That's what this house is about. And so I've been praying God's just going to send us people who are hungry for that. And I hope you're here for that purpose. And if not, jump on the train with us. And we're going to, whether there's two or three or 75 or 175, who knows, maybe there's a day coming when this whole room is filled at 9.15 for people in that space to travail. And then people walk in and go, well, I'm kind of late to church. No, you're late to the prayer gathering. And then the worship service is a spillover of the travailing. Wouldn't that be something? So when John and the team get up here to lead, they just get on the front end of a wave of the Spirit. Someone said to me in the back this morning, stand there, said, Pastor, can you feel it? Can you sense it? The Spirit is stirring something in this body. Do you sense it? Do you sense it? Church, do you sense it? The Spirit is stirring something. It's okay to say something once in a while to me. It's okay. You know, some... You know, this is Zionsville, I know. It's more like Golf Club of Indiana clap. I get it. But, you know, it's okay to stretch yourself a little bit. Go a little Lucas Oil Stadium on me this morning once in a while, okay? We're going to have a little breakout of Lucas Oil. We're going to cheer once. There we go. I know you got it in you. All you fantasy people have been going crazy on me the last two weeks, so at least go crazy with me in here, okay? So I thought it was so cool. You know, Chuck and Pam Rapp, their season ticket holders right over here. Chuck Rapp sent me... Yesterday, he's Africa Mission Director for One Mission Society. So Chuck and Pam Rapp, he's retired. He and Pam live in Brownsburg. They sit here. They're members of Eagle. He sent me this picture yesterday. Go ahead and put it up. He spends a good chunk of his, several weeks a year over in Africa doing his work, helping church leaders and doing all kinds of great stuff over there. This is the country of Uganda. He's in Uganda right now. He's helping a church in Uganda. I think it was yesterday or the day before. And he started to tell the church a little bit about what's going on in America, what's going on in our local church. And he said the church, this is the church in Uganda, he said they, they paused and they said, we want to pray for the American church. So Chuck pulled his phone out to just snap a picture. This is the Ugandan church with arms raised and voices raised, youngest of child to the oldest there, and they're praying for the American church. You know what they're praying for us? That there would be an awakening that would come to the American church. The Lord is stirring something. Come on now, we got... We got folks in Uganda joining the prayer meeting right here, okay? And man, I'm just so grateful for the representation we have from Nigeria, we have here in Kenya. I'm so grateful for our African brothers and sisters who I think can teach us so much about travailing prayer. This church here, they know how to travail. We're kind of in preschool right now with it, but the Lord's going to teach us. We're going to grow together, and they're going to be a big part of it. And so if you're here from other nationalities, and we welcome you in. Bring, please, bring your spirit of prayer. Bring your heart and passion for the spirit with us, and let's learn how to pray together. 
and let's believe God for an awakening. You know what they also prayed for? Chuck said they're praying that there would just be a breakthrough on this issue of distraction going. Country's so distracted. It's so caught up in comfort and convenience. It's just so easy to live in America. There needs to be a breakthrough. There needs to be awakening. There needs to be a stirring as the Ugandan church stretches their hands and cries out for us. So listen, in a, in a missions world, who's leading who here? Come on. Who's leading who? I'm involved in the front line of missions, not because God needs me to, because I need to be. Because what happens in me when I get involved? Those of you who've traveled around the world and you get in settings like that, it's what happens in you. You come, who helped who? This is the space where Nehemiah in Nehemiah 1, he's been raised to say, hey, when you're breathing air that's marked with compromise, which by the way would have been Babylonian, right? The Babylonian culture, I called it last week, I'm saying, I believe the air that we're breathing for the most part in North America is much more Babylonian than anything else. Cultural air, mocking God, pushing him to the margins, putting self at the center, elevating all kinds of things that are outside the bounds of what God, it's Babylonian. That's what Nehemiah, he was breathing that air his whole upbringing, but his mom and his dad and his siblings and some circle in that church, they gathered together, and man, right in the face of that Babylonian air, they prayed the kingdom of God in. Oh my gosh, what a vision. What about us? How about, what if we're Nehemiah 1? What if that's us right now? What if what's happening is we're being gripped with current reality? Are we going to do what Nehemiah did? That's what, we're, that's what I'm calling us to. We're going to mourn. We're going to fast. We're going to pray. We're going to contend. And we're going to ask the Spirit to do something in this time, in this country, in a way that I believe will mark the trajectory of a nation. I believe it. It can happen. It's not just happening here. It's spilling out all over the place. We're just going to jump on and join what God's doing because this is His church bought with his blood, possessed by his spirit. And what did he promise? The gates of hell aren't going to travail against it. Guess what, church? That means the 2024 election is not going to sabotage Jesus' church. Let me just say it right now. Okay? So all of you off the rails about what's going to go on in 20, I promise you this, Jesus' church is going to be just fine. Now, our country might be in some, but the church is going to be just fine. And we're going to step forward and going to pray in the face of that. That's what Nehemiah was doing. That's where we left him off last week. And the little record of his prayers from 5 to 11. And that's where you can look back over that. And today, here's what we see. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. So he's there. He's praying. He's fasting. He's calling out. He's crying out. He's travailing. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. Now, who's King Artaxerxes? The king of the kingdom of Persia. Nehemiah serving, look at the next, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king, because what's Nehemiah's role? Nehemiah's not a pastor, he's not a priest, he's not a prophet, he's cupbearer to a king. That's Bible language for a day laborer serving in the palace. He's a worker, he's a lay person, he's you guys, he's got a job, he's got a family, he's got work to be done, and he's there serving, doing his work. And God says, yeah, I got something for you to do. I'm going to pull back the veil. I'm going to grip. I'm going to baptize you with honesty. I'm going to open your eyes to the realities that you're living in. I'm going to give you a window into another king and another kingdom. He just, boom, pulls him into that. And then Nehemiah's like, oh, my God, falls on his face and begins to travail. 
says, I had not been sad in his presence before. Now, why would it be a challenge to be sad in the king's presence before? Because King Artaxerxes was one of those guys that, you, depending on the day of the week, whether he was going to welcome you or execute you, he's one of those guys. So he just, yeah, was just really not very stable as a leader, and so he would just make really irrational decisions, and so he's like, I, I got to really, God's got to open this door. The only way Artaxerxes is ever going to let me go is going to have to be the work of God. And so he's been fasting and praying, and the king asks him, why does your face look so sad? And why are you not, in, when you're not ill, this can be nothing but underlying sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So look at chapter 1, verse 1. He gets the word in the month of Kislev. Do you see that? Chapter 1, verse 1, Kislev. That's December. Chapter 2, verse 1, in the month of Nisan. That's April. Do the math. December, January, February, March, April. Nehemiah's been fasting, praying, mourning, calling out day and night for five months. It's like this, I'm speculating here, but I'm, I'm thinking Nehemiah, he knows who he's talking to, we established that last week. I think Nehemiah in his mind had I'm going to fall on my face. I'm going to call out to the God who has all the power and resources to rebuild walls, to restore gates, to encourage and rebuild the people. Like God wants this done back in the homeland. God's going to get it done. He asked me to do it. I'm all in. Here I am, Lord. Let's go. I'm speculating, but I think Nehemiah had a time frame in mind that was much different than five months of fasting and praying and crying out. And it's rep represented by this phrase, sadness of heart. Because when, weeks, when days turn to weeks and weeks turn to months, and some of you know months turn to years, what begins to settle on the soul of your travailing is a sadness of heart. And it starts leaking out of your face. And I want to call that today travailing tears. Because church, when we set our feet on the path of travailing prayer, we're going to find ourselves shedding some travailing tears together. And we got to talk about this. And we got to enter into this together. Many of you will know the name David Kinneman, president of Barner Research Group. Here's a picture of David Kinneman's family. In October of 2020, he lost his 46 year old wife, Jill, to brain cancer. Those are three children. And David talked about it was 41 months from the time of diagnosis to the time of her passing. And I was listening to an interview with him recently, and he said it was 41 months of calling out to God. In our language right now, it's 41 months travailing of desperation and dependence for God to heal her. 41 months of rallying friends and family to pray, for the church to pray. 41 months of doctor's appointments and tests and 41 months of watching his wife go on a slow, steady, downward slope to the point where she passes away. And David Kinneman told the story of great as thy faithfulness was her favorite hymn to the point where she asked for it to be sung at their wedding 25 years earlier. So at their wedding, great as thy faithfulness, 
And then as it became clear to Jill that she was going to need to plan her own memorial service, she said to her husband and her kids, I want us to sing, I want all of you to sing together, Great is Thy Faithfulness, at my memorial service. And David said that he sat the kids down and he talked to them about the context of the song is Lamentations 3. It's Jeremiah writing a lament. It's a time when the prophet was saying he's in pain, he's in grief, he's in loss, he's confused, he's discouraged, and yet in the midst of all of that, he's anchoring himself to something called the faithfulness of God. And that's what the song's kind of based in. It's lamentation. It's come from an environment, a prophet of lamenting. That's why they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet. And David Kinneman said they as a family just spent so much time over the 41 months weeping, crying out, not understanding, staring in the dark, looking for light. And what they were holding on to is the faithfulness of God, the character of God would be the beacon of light in the midst of the darkness. So when it came time for the memorial service, and they gathered. The lines of the song that David said just kind of pierced through the family soul. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Sung 25 years earlier at a wedding, and now same family at a memorial. And some of you, that's where you're at right now. You're with David Kinneman and their three kids. You've stepped, you've got a, you got a baptism in current reality that's got an agony to current reality. It might be something with your body. It might be something with your family. It might be something with your work. It might be some secret private thing going on in here. You've got something that's gripped your life to the point that's thrust you to the place of desperation and dependence. But if you were honest, your days have turned into weeks, your weeks have turned into months, and for some of you, your months have turned into years, and there's a sadness of heart that starts to settle on the soul. And tears begin to shed that we'll call travailing tears. And here's the promise. Psalm 56, 8. Here's what God says he does. You keep track of all my sorrows. The psalmist knows something about travailing tears. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. So here's the promise as we step on this pathway of travailing in prayer together. Here, here's the promise. God tracks our sorrows and collects our tears. That's the promise. He tracks them. And he collects them. He tracks the sorrow of the healing that hasn't or wasn't given in this life. Of course, David Kinneman knows Jill in the life to come fully and completely set free from brain cancer, and we rejoice in that. But for the loved ones remaining behind, they didn't get to see it in this life. That, the sorrow of that, the sadness of the loss of her physical presence, that. The tears of longing for something to change, recognizing the God whom you're talking to has the power to change it, and it's out of your hands to do anything about it, and it seems from our perspective, nothing is shifting, nothing is moving, nothing is changing. That, the tears around that. The sorrow of circumstances as you travail that from our seat go from bad to worse. The tears of being completely powerless to do anything about it. I thought of John the Baptist in Luke 7. 
John the Baptist knows about travailing tears. You know the scene? He got arrested because he called out King Herod because the king wasn't making the best decisions about women in his life. Just imagine if we might have some issues going on in our own country at that point. The leadership, maybe some choices that maybe, ah, there's someone who comes and says, hey, you know what, there's, you, need to kinda, you need to straighten this area of your life up. Well, when you did that with King Herod, what did, what did King Herod do? King Herod, he just had you arrested. Threw John the Baptist in jail. Now, here's what John the Baptist had to be confident in. He baptized Jesus. I mean, come on. He baptized Jesus. So he's thinking, well, I know someone who can open these gates and escort me out of here. You with me? He he's watched him turn water into wine. He was there when the heavens opened and the doves and the Spirit of God and that whole scene. That's John the Baptist. He knew Jesus raised the dead and caused the blind to see, said to the fig tree, wither, and it withered. He knew this Jesus had the power, authority, and resources to get him out of jail. And so his waiting turned into an extended waiting, turned into he sent a couple of his friends who came to visit him in jail and said, hey, a couple of his friends said, hey, could you go to Jesus and just kind of remind him I'm still here? And they go to Jesus, and Jesus basically gives them the little teaching around, hey, just there's more going on here, guys. And his waiting continued to the point where the guards come. No doubt when he heard the rustling of the guards coming, which he would have known what happens when the guards come. It's just your execution. He would have expected the angels to come like we read in the book of Acts and the, the prison to shake. And, the, and they grab him and they drag him out and he's beheaded. And his head is brought on a platter before the king and I want you to think about this now. I think one of the deepest conversations that I wish was recorded in here was a conversation that Jesus had with John the Baptist's family. Because you know Jesus would have went to his family. Can you picture that? Holding the grieving family of John the Baptist? Jesus. And the tears that they shed in his chest and the wailing that had to come when they just... They couldn't understand. They had seen Jesus do so many other amazing miracles, and he's up to, and he allows their loved one to die. I would have loved to have heard Jesus' reflection at John's memorial service. That would have been a beautiful thing to hear about. See, John the Baptist knows about travailing tears. So do Mary and Martha in John 11. Remember the scene, Mary and Martha, their, good, their loved one, Lazarus, is sick. They're in Bethany, and they know Jesus is 15 miles away on the other side of the Jordan, and they know if they just get Lazarus to Jesus or get Jesus to Lazarus, Jesus will do what Jesus does, and that's make sick people well. They knew that about Jesus. They'd seen him do it a lot. They just said, well, we'll just go to Jesus and tell him about Lazarus and make sure he gets word, and they send word to Jesus about Lazarus' illness and condition, and they expected Jesus to come. And the text in John 11 says, Jesus lingered where he was two more days, 15 miles away on the other side of the Jordan. In that span of time, Lazarus dies. And Mary and Martha and the rest of the family, Jesus, you're, 
you're doing all these miracles on the other side of the Jordan. We need you to do something here in Bethany. Where are you? What's going on? That's travailing tears. So it's John the Baptist and his family. It's Mary and Martha and their contingency. It's Nehemiah and his group. He's 700 miles away from his homeland, and he gets word of the, the broken walls and the burned gates and the discouraged people, and he's crying out to God for an open door to go to King Artaxerxes, and days turns into weeks, and weeks turns into months, and he's five months, and a sadness begins to settle around his heart. And the sadness stems from, it's this, it's this space where you know God has the capacity to do what needs to be done, but he seems inattentive and unresponsive to your crying out. Anybody been there? Some of you are there right now. Where you're crying out from your bed of whatever ailment has, like you're crying out and you know God hears and you know God loves you and you know God is able and you hear stories of rejoicing for others and you yourself sense, you feel this, he seems inattentive and unresponsive. That right there, that's the travailing tears. There was a young adult named Jenna who was walking along with a good friend, journeying through an illness of her good friend, travailing in prayer for her good friend, fasting for her friend, crying out to God for her friend, and she watched her friend go from bad to worse to death. And this shook Jenna to the core as a young adult. And she had to wrestle this through. She had travailing tears. She had this the soul work that's in that space of why and what this about and where are you God? And she just and here's a little paragraph of what she wrote on the backside of the journey. She wrote this. I could embrace mystery or run from it, Jenna said. Could I make peace with not knowing why my prayers weren't answered? Or would this be the experience I define God by? Ooh, that's a big line. The one experience that overwhelms all the others I had along the way. Could I continue to trust God without having answers and reasons? We're all going to face painful disorientation, she says at some point, and the challenging invitation is to trust even in the darkness. I think there's quite a few Jenna's here or listening online. There's quite a few Jenna's here. You've been travailing in prayer. You've been gripped by some current circumstances. You're calling out, you're crying out, you're desperate for God to come. And the experience, you know he can move that mountain. And for whatever reason, you sense, like Mary and Martha, like he's 15 miles away on the other side of the Jordan doing a bunch of really cool stuff over there, but I need him in Bethany. Or like Nehemiah, you're in the middle of Iraq, modern-day Iraq, middle of Babylonian kingdom, crying out, and the crisis is 700 miles away, and there doesn't seem to be anything shifting. See, church, I, I don't know why. I don't know why in this space with God. I don't know why as a church we experienced like we experienced a few weeks ago. There was a family who cried out during the song, we need a miracle. They cried out for healing for their baby. And in that moment, the baby was healed. Praise God. Rejoice in that. And we did. And we continue. And then simultaneously, there are other families here who've been crying out for years for their womb to be given life, and it's month after month of barrenness. I don't know what to do with that. 
other than travail and tears with you. I don't know why one person's chain of addiction that I've seen and heard testify broken and in the first moment they called out to Jesus to break the chain of addiction. Hallelujah, we rejoice in that. And then another person's The grip of addiction, the claws just stay so tight around the heart that travailing goes months and years. I don't know. I I don't know why chronic pain in the body lingers for one as it's released in another. I don't know why some prodigal children come home more quickly and others it's travailing longer. I don't know why some travailing is days and others it's decades. But church, here's what I've learned to do, and here's what I'm inviting us to do as we go on this journey together with Nehemiah, with John the Baptist, with Mary and Martha, with the church of Jesus has done for 2,000 plus years. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to hold on to what we do know while we journey through what we don't. That's what we do. That's the Kinnaman family with Lamentations 3. That's what Jeremiah did with the people. It's like, Lord, we don't fully understand everything, but here's what we do know. We do know you track our sorrows and you collect our tears. We know you're that kind of a God. We know that you hear our cries for help. We know you're faithful even in the dark. We know that about you, God. We know you're loving in the silence. We know you're gracious and compassionate in the mystery. So Jesus The invitation he issues is you just ask and keep on asking. You knock and keep on knocking. You seek and keep on seeking. That's what he says to do. And that's what we'll do. And while sometimes the gap from expectations to reality gets really wide, if you haven't encountered that yet on the praying way, just stay on the praying way. I promise you, you're going to encounter it. And the gap is this. How you expect God to come through and the reality of how he chooses to come through That gap can get pretty wide, and in that gap is often watered with travailing tears. It's that space where you just say, God, I don't understand, and this really hurts, and it hurts deep. And I know you track my sorrows, and I know you collect my tears, so I'm going to surrender. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to surrender the grand mystery of what I don't understand in this. I'm going to surrender it to you. And I'm going to choose to trust there's just a whole lot more going on in this space than I can get my heart and mind around. And I'm going to step into that. I'm going to pray in the face of that. In the middle of the dark, in the middle of the mystery, I'm going to get to this place with the help of your spirit to say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. Listen to what Parker Palmer says about this space. I put this quote in your notes. It says, the deeper our faith the more doubt we must endure. The deeper our hope, the more prone we are to despair. The deeper our love, the more pain its loss will bring. These are a few of the paradoxes we must hold as human beings. Hear this. If we refuse to hold them in the hopes of living without doubt, despair, and pain, we will also find ourselves living without hope, faith, and love. Some of you, you got a PhD in that. I've learned more how to travail in tears with you as a body than anyone else in my life. To pray with you, for some of you, it's been decades. And this is that journey. The way you've 
the sadness of heart that I know settles around some of the circumstances and to see you continue to faithfully cry out to God and to trust Him in the dark. I promise you it's not in vain. He collects those tears. He counts those sorrows. So worship team, come on back up. Here's how we're going to close. I'm going to close this with a story about Monica, the mother of St. Augustine. Now, many of you know the name St. Augustine because he ended up becoming one of the most significant leaders in the early church in the 300s. 300s, early 400s, Augustine, he ended up becoming an amazing spiritual leader. He ended up theologian, bishop, I mean, incredible amount of spiritual fruit flowed from St. Augustine's life. But the backstory of St. Augustine was, in his teen years, he was way off the rails. I mean, his teen years, he was, whoo, he ended up fathering a child outside of wedlock. He was not interested in Jesus. He didn't want anything to do with the church, and his parents had raised him to walk with Jesus and love Jesus and know Jesus, and his mom, particularly Monica. Monica tells the story of going to Augustine when he was kind of in the young adult years and just rebellious and self-centered and doing what he wants, indulging the sinful nature. I mean, just, and she said, this is a quote, she said she would sit with Augustine and say, oh, Augustine, you know the gospel, she would say to him. You know of God's great love for you and Jesus. Why are you living as you're living? Why are you running away from him? Can you just feel that, moms? A mom just pleading with her young adult son. Why? Don't keep running. Don't keep rebelling. You know we've raised you. Come back to Jesus begging. Somewhere in his mid-twenties, Monica, St. Augustine's mother, resolved this. She said, I decided something. She said, I decided to talk less to Augustine about God and to talk to God more about Augustine. Wasn't that a good line? It's like, I I just made a decision. I've said so many words with Augustine about God. Now I'm going to flood God with words about Augustine. And she began to travail. He's in his mid-twenties at this point. She began to go to the church. The church leader said the altar at the church where Monica lived. I mean, I love the artist's picture of her. I mean, can you just see the scars of travailing tears in her face? Can you see that? Moms, can you feel that? Some of you are right there right now. That's Monica. I'm just, they, she would come to the altar, and the leaders of the church said she'd literally shed her physical tears on the altar, calling out Augustine's name. Month after month, year after year, age 33, boom, heaven's parted, spirit broke on his heart, and he was radically converted. I mean, Augustine just came to spiritual life and just turned as passionate as he was about running the road of darkness, he flipped towards the kingdom of light, that passionate. And obviously, the many who were knowing his past, would often ask him about the radical changes in his life. And here's how he would describe and summarize the change. He would say this. He would say, quote, I'm nothing more than the son of my mother's tears. That's how he would describe himself. When he was introduced to different places, he said, please introduce me as the son of my mother's tears. For some of you, that's your story. You're the spouse of your spouse's tears. You're the friend of a friend's tears. 
you're the sibling of a sibling's tears. Or you are the son or daughter of your mom or dad's tears. You know that. That's the explanation of why you're here or wherever you're listening from. The reason you're tuning in to the ways of Jesus on this morning is a result of some travailing tears on your behalf. You know that. And so I wonder, start to think about, you know, are there some parents of tears here? Friends of tears here? School campus. I thought about, there can be some school of tears here? College campuses of tears here? What about a city of tears? Like, are we going to, Whitestown, Zionsville, Lebanon, Brownsburg, Pike, Carmel, Westfield, are they going to be city of our tears, city of Indianapolis, like Jerusalem was for Jesus? You know, Jerusalem was a city of his tears. Will that be for us? What about a nation of tears? Church, what will it look like? What would it look like if we joined Monica and we decided this, we're going to speak less to our culture about Jesus and speak to Jesus more about our culture? What might happen? What if we took the angst and the energy we feel about the cultural moment we're living in, what if we channeled that to travailing prayer? Whew. I'm telling you, church, I think some things will start shifting. Because if we set our feet on the travailing way, we say we got to recognize, we got to be honest about the journey of travailing tears. So I'm calling us to consecrate ourselves wholeheartedly to the person of Jesus, to step into the arena of travailing prayer, to prioritize presence in the church. If we do that, we'll see renewal in the nation. But it will not be without this journey of God counting our sorrows and collecting our tears. And when we hit that space, like some of you are in this morning, you're in that space right now, then here's what we, we hold on to what we do know. The songs that we sing, the scriptures that we share together, that you get to be reminded by the community of faith, or you hold on to what you do know, that God is faithful, that God is good, that God hears my cries, that God's up to something. He's carrying out his purposes. He's working his plans, even though you can't see and you don't understand. And there's grand mystery. Yes, you bring it all right there. And just lay it at his feet and say, Jesus... In the middle of that dark, I trust you. You're Nehemiah in month four wondering what in the world's going to happen to get the king to release me from this. That's, that's right there. And so church, Einstein asked, somebody's got to find out about prayer. Somebody, please find out about prayer. Let's be that somebody. Can we be that somebody together? Let's set our feet on the path of travailing prayer and let's hold each other and cry out together in the space with travailing tears. Let's pray. Jesus, I recognize this day, this moment, this message, hit some spaces that by your spirit minister a comfort and peace that comes, the wordless groans by the spirit now, draw near to some circumstances and situations that you know the full details of. You know where they are. You see. You understand. Would you give each one a tremendous sense of Emmanuel, God, with them right now, that they're not alone, that you hear them, you see them, you know them, you love them. And teach us as a people. Call us as a people to be a house of travailing prayer. 
come. Spirit of the living God, come. Fall afresh on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.